Thanks for that wisdom, Garrett Kell. Well, before I uh, was audible, I was saying that uh, the most common prayer request that I feel that I get as a pastor is a prayer request for wisdom. I hadn't thought about that until studying the text this week, and I realized that uh, in every conversation almost, or in any time that I'm ever uh, talking with somebody about prayer, that's uh, usually a prayer request that gets mentioned. So a conversation about somebody's work, well, you can pray for wisdom about how to deal with this situation that I'm facing at work, or uh, about how I can strike a a better work-life balance. I need wisdom for that, or even need wisdom for whether I should take this other job or move to another city. Conversations about health, you can pray for wisdom for the doctors, that the doctors would have wisdom, or the surgeons would have wisdom, or the nurses would have wisdom. Conversations about dating, I need... I desire to be married, but you you can pray, obviously, that I would have wisdom regarding the right person or the right timing or the right boundaries in a dating relationship. Conversations about ministry. I want to share the gospel with this neighbor of mine. You can just pray that I would have wisdom to know how to enter into that conversation well. You can pray for wisdom in my discipleship relationships, that I would know how to invest in others in a healthy way, in a right way, and to train others up. Conversations about marriage. You can pray for wisdom about how to have this conversation with my spouse, wisdom on how to love my spouse well, wisdom for the future of our family. Conversations about parenting, you can pray for wisdom for us, about discipline, about education, about decisions around sports. And we could go on and on and on. How can you pray for me? You can pray for wisdom. How can I pray for you? Apparently I can pray for wisdom because that's what I hear over and over and over again. The reality is, friends, that you think about wisdom quite a lot. That's clear from the way that we couch our prayer requests. But here's a question. In all of our praying for wisdom, how do you know that you've obtained it? In all of your desire to have wisdom and to have understanding, to be a person of biblical wisdom, how do you know that you've actually obtained it? How do you know whether you have true wisdom or tainted wisdom? How do we know as we're offering counsel and um, advice to other people whether or not we're walking in wisdom or whether or not we're wise in what we're saying and teaching and thinking and counseling with others? How do we know that we are people of wisdom in our own lives and how do we know that we are giving true biblical wisdom to others as well? Well, that's the topic of our text this morning. It is how to recognize true wisdom. What I want to argue this morning is this. We must engage in an evidence-based evaluation of our wisdom. We must engage in an evidence-based evaluation of our wisdom. That's where James is taking us this morning in James chapter 3. If you have a Bible in front of you, I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 13 down through verse 18 this morning. James 3, 13 to 18, we must engage in an evidence-based evaluation of our wisdom. Our outline for this morning is, is this. I'm going to look at, at this text in, in three headings. Number one, how all wisdom is disclosed. So how all wisdom is disclosed, that's verse 13. How worldly wisdom is detected, verses 14 to 16. And then how heavenly wisdom is detected. Verses 17 and 18. 
So how all wisdom is, dis is disclosed, how worldly wisdom is detected, and how heavenly wisdom is detected. Look at the text, starting in verse 3. I'll read the text. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. First thing we see in our text in verse 13 is how all wisdom is disclosed. If this seems like an abrupt change of topic as you're reading through the book of James, well, remember the big picture of what James is doing, what James is writing this letter to accomplish. James is addressing this letter to these scattered Christians who are outside of Jerusalem, outside of their homeland, and they are uh, facing various uh, uh, temptations, various pressures, various stresses in their lives. And as he is writing this, this letter to, to them, uh, he is... Um, th these Christians who are experiencing these trials and these difficulties, he needs to give certain reminders to them of how to live the Christian life in a, in a complete way, in a, in a genuine way, in a holistic way. And so that's what he's been doing throughout the entire book. And so when facing difficulty, how do you respond to the word? Your temptation is going to be to just be a hearer of the word. And James says, no, when the heat is turned up, you can't just be a hearer of the word. You have to be a doer of the word as well. When times are tough, how do you treat others in your church? The temptation is going to be to show partiality based on what you can get from the people around you. And James says, don't do that. You cannot treat people with partiality in the church. When things are hard, what does true faith look like? The temptation is going to be to just have a, a profession of faith. But James says, no, faith without works is actually a dead faith. You have to have works that go along with your faith. When you're under pressure, there's going to be a temptation to be loose in your speech and not honor God with your tongue. And James says, as uh, Ben showed us last week in the, the previous passage right before this, that, that we must uh, bridle our tongue and pay attention there. And so James, though it seems like he may be jumping around to different topics, he's hitting all of these different topics under this big umbrella of what do you do when times are tough, when there's times of stress, when there's times of difficulty, when you have hard years and realizing how that is going to, to um, impact your life with each other and your life in the church. I'm sure that that sounds incredibly familiar in a year like this. And so James is just hitting these different topics, helping Christians to think through what a holistic Christian life looks like when times are tough. And so that brings us to a fresh topic this morning in verse 13. 
he turns just as there, there are those in the church who would set themselves up as teachers and those who would use their speech and their tongues in a, in a way of, of doing uh, a good ministry in the same way that there would be those who would claim to be teachers and desire to be teachers, there were also those in the church who would claim to be wise and who would claim to have understanding. And so in verse 13, James turns his uh, attention towards that topic, the topic of w- wisdom and of understanding. And so he asks a question here in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? James calls these people to step forward. It's it's like he would be here at Delray this morning and he would say, who are the wise people out there? Who are those with understanding? We're going to have you come up and, and gather right over here in the church. And then as soon as you start to stand up, he says, sit back down. Raise a hand if you're one of the wise and under, put your hand down. And he smacks your hand down as you go to raise it up. He, he's setting a verbal trap here that who is the wise and understanding among you? And he says, no, 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 not so fast. You have no right to claim that. Who is wise and understanding among you? James says, let him, by his good conduct, show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You can't recognize wisdom by somebody's own admission that they're wise. You can't recognize wisdom by that, but by their conduct. True wisdom will show itself in good conduct and actions of meekness or humility. We understand then that wisdom is not the same thing as intelligence. True wisdom has less to do with diplomas and more to do with your deeds, James is saying. To gauge true wisdom, we don't need to employ a standardized test. We don't need you to write an essay. We don't need to give you a case study to see how your brilliance and your uh, creative problem solving would think about it and handle it. No, James says, we look at your life and see if you're truly wise. Or we look at your life and see if your, wisdom, if your life is tainted with worldly wisdom. So as you can tell, that the question isn't a bad question to ask. James rightly asks this congregation. But it's a question that's rightly going to be answered by us pointing fingers at other people. Who is wise here among us? None of us can step forward and say, that's me. But we can all look and say, no, no, he is. She is. We see it. We see it in their conduct. Or at the very most, on an on a, on a individual level, we'd be able to say, if James asked that question of Delray Baptist Church, who are as wise and understanding among you, you could say, well, I, I hope that's me, but you're going to have to ask everybody else. Because it's seen in our deeds, not in just our profession. We don't need to say much more about this because James will get into the details in the rest of our passage, and I don't want to save time to do that to get in the rest of the verses after this one, but verse 13 establishes from the beginning that wisdom has a look to it. We tend to think of wisdom as this incorporeal and tangible, ethereal thing, but James says, no, 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 you can see it. You can see wisdom, and you see true wisdom and good conduct and in meekness. Wisdom is less about what I say and more about what you see. That's wisdom. That's how we see it. And church, how that drives us deeper into further humility and a deeper community with one another, even with something like wisdom, we need each other 
to help assess that in our lives, to help sharpen that in each other's lives, to help encourage that in each other's lives, to help stir that up in each other's lives. That's actually what what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. Don't neglect the meeting together. Uh, You need to come together so that you might stir up one another to love and good works. We need each other to stir up uh, wisdom and to be able to recognize it and to sharpen each other in it. Wisdom has a look to it. The question is, do you look like wisdom? Always going to help us distinguish whether or not we do. The next two points First, how earthly wisdom is detected. How earthly wisdom is detected. Verses 14 to 16. Look again there at verses 14 to 16. He's talked about how wisdom has a look to it. And then he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Verse 14 begins with a contrast. If you note that there, the word but, he's speaking to the same group who might stand up and claim that they are wise and understanding. So James says, if that's you, if you want to claim that you are wise and have understanding, but you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, then don't both... Sit back down. Don't boast about about your wisdom and be false to the truth. You're being false to the truth. You actually don't have the wisdom that you claim that you do. You actually aren't wise. That, That bitter jealousy and selfish ambition actually negates your claim to being wise and understanding. And so if you want to come forward and say, yeah, I'm one of the wise and understanding ones, and James says, but you have bitterness and selfish ambition in uh, in your your life, then, then you just negated your claim to wisdom. The Greek word here for jealousy, it could be good or bad. It's actually the, the Greek word zelos, which you might hear our word zealous from. It's where we get the word for zeal. That could be a good thing or, or a bad thing, but James puts the word bitter in front of it. Puts the word bitter in front of it. And in James' day, just as in our day, the word bitter can work in, a, in two different ways. We can speak of a, of a drink or a food that would have a bitter taste to it. It's the same thing in James' day. Or we could talk about an attitude of bitterness. That, that a person has a bitter taste in our eyes. There's a, a, a bitterness that we can have in, in our relationships where we feel embittered or harsh towards someone. And that's the idea here. James is pointing to the attitude of harshness, the attitude of resentfulness, the attitude of bitterness that looks at somebody else, what they have, what they've gained, what they've accomplished, opportunities they've been afforded, privileges they have, and it looks at them with bitter jealousy. Ambition, like jealousy, need not be a bad thing, but the idea here is that it's selfishness is the word he uses. It's selfish. It's selfish ambition. It's a disposition of strife. This person desires things and then pushes others out of the way as they compete and grasp to take what it is that they want. And James says, friends, if you do either one of those two things, if you are characterized by either one of those two things, either the bitter jealousy or the selfish ambition, you're being false to the truth. Now, what is it that both of those things have in common? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. They're self-focused. It's all about you. 
Bitter jealousy looks at what somebody else has that you don't and you want it. Selfish ambition looks at what you don't have that you feel that you have to have, and you go and grab it. It's me-centered. It's me-focused. It's interesting, isn't it? Out of all the things that James could have pressed his finger on when he's talking about the opposite of, of, of godly, divine, heavenly wisdom, and he wants to talk about the opposite of that and worldly wisdom and how you can recognize worldly wisdom, that he grabs these two things. Out of all the things he could have uh, pressed in on, he presses in on jealousy and selfish ambition. Why? Because as we saw in verse 13, and we'll see more of in verses 17 to 18, godly wisdom considers others. <laughs> Godly wisdom casts off self and looks to others. Godly wisdom has a humility to it. It takes others into account and how our words and actions are affecting those around us. And you know that's true. You've been around people who are like that, and you know how incredibly attractive and refreshingly wise that is to be around someone who you know knows the truth and that they will happily defer. They don't have to have the last word. They can agree to disagree. You've seen it. The more self-focused you are, the less wise you will be. The more you're chasing your own glory and your own desires and building your own empire and your own kingdom, you could have multiple PhDs and be awarded every government contract in the city and have a biography filled with accolades, but James says you're a fool if you're filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's not wisdom at all. You can impress people with your biography, but it's not true wisdom. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are signs of tainted wisdom, and they will both block you from having true wisdom. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy work like a, a drug that would inhibit us from seeing reality and making wise decisions. As long as they are there and aren't repented of in your life they, and, and are allowed to steer the ship, Wisdom has no foothold. The person simply isn't able to lift their eyes off of themselves long enough to receive and to walk in true wisdom. Listen, if that's not depressing enough, let me make you feel worse. <laughs> Welcome to Delray Baptist Church. <laughs> there are teams of people working around the clock to make sure you are filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Teams of really smart people that are working around the clock on advertising that is targeted right at you to say, you, you see what they have, you don't have it, and you need to have it. You see what they've accomplished, you haven't accomplished that. You haven't bought your spouse a car with a bow on it for Christmas. <laughs> what have you been doing with your life? Right? There, there are people who are working around the clock to stir up bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in you. And there's other teams of smart people who are writing computer code and algorithms to make sure that that idea is attacking you every hour of every day. That's what your social media feed is doing. Look at their life. Look at what they have. Look at the vacation they took. Look at what they said about this hot button issue. And look at who's agreeing with them and not with you. There are people working around the clock to make sure you don't have an ounce of true wisdom in your life. Because bitter jealousy and selfish ambition 
cloud it all out and push it all to the fringes. How much in your life is working against you having true wisdom? Church, I just say that to say we face an uphill battle. And if you didn't know that you were in a battle before today, may this text and James wake you from your slumber to see the high stakes in the battle that we are in. Listen, I know, I know plenty, just as an example, I know plenty of, I know plenty of guys and plenty of people who, who would have, who would have uh, guards and software on their phones to, to make sure they don't look at, at uh, indecent images on their phones. People who are in accountability groups, people who pay money for software, people who have changed the password to things and given it to somebody else so that they can't access and look at certain images online. I don't know anybody who said, I need, I need software to keep me off my social media feed so much. Because all it's doing is stirring up bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in me. Would you please give me some accountability there? I need help. Because it's clouding out all biblical wisdom in my life. Friends, that sin and that attack from Satan is every bit as dangerous as some of the other things we may stumble upon online. May we be just as vigilant. I don't think we can read this passage in James and not see at least walk away and be like, this is a much bigger deal than what I thought. This is a much more dangerous and insidious attack than what I thought it was. The fight for your wisdom. This is a deadly game. Look at verse 15. This isn't the, the, the wisdom that comes from above, but rather it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. You ever heard about anybody talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil? That's it right there. That's what he just said. It, it, is, it is earthly. It's the world. It's the things of the world. It's the values of the world. It's, it's, it's unspiritual. It's the flesh. It's the things of, of not of, of supernatural truth and of spiritual truth, but of fleshly truth. And it's the devil. It's, it's uh, things that are, that are uh, demonic, satanic. Now, you may read that and say, I mean, isn't demonic a bit strong, James? <laughs> Laying it on a little bit thick, aren't you? Uh, that this is demonic? Well, not at all. That just betrays a misunderstanding that we have of Satan and his schemes. He comes to us in beauty. He comes to us deceptively packaged. The Bible says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Church, beware of the ways that you're tempted to and the ways that you justify bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your life. These things sound really ugly in this text, so it's easy for us to read that and be like, yeah, that's gross. I don't want anything to do with that. But yet, that's not how they come packaged to us. They're glittering and pretty and attractive. And we justify them all the time. I do as well. How vigilant we must be. How vigilant must our fight be. So much is at stake. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, 4 that's an explanatory word. He's about to explain how he knows this to be the case, that this is so awful and uh, that it's the world of flesh and the devil and, and this, is, is not going in a, uh, the, this is not true biblical wisdom. Look at verse 16, where, for, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, 
there will be disorder and every vile practice. You can recognize it by its fruit, which we saw in our first point. True wisdom has a look to it. Wisdom is shown in deeds, and that's what we have here. The earthly, unspiritual, demonic attitudes of jealousy and ambition will bring you nothing but chaos. If that is, is, is present and unrepented of in our lives, our decisions that we make in our marriages are going to be earthly or filled or at least tainted with worldly wisdom. The decisions that you make in your parenting are going to be tainted with worldly wisdom. The decisions that you make at work are going to be shot through with, with worldly, unspiritual decision-making. Your medical decisions, your dating, it will be disordered and filled, James says, with every vile practice. I think before we get into the good heavenly wisdom, it's appropriate to just stop at this point and just consider Jesus for a moment. This all does seem a bit intense. <laughs> this all does seem a bit scary, and I think we're meant to feel that. Talking about something as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic is not just a throwaway phrase for the New Testament authors. This is real. James just saw Jesus nailed to a cross. This is real. This is meant to be heavy and, and kind, of, uh, kind of grab our attention. This all seems intense and scary and a bit above our, pray, our, our pay grade, as it were. But the glorious truth is this. <laughs> the glorious truth is this, that, that we had no ability to be anything other than earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. We, we have no ability to do anything other than that, except that Jesus was the embodiment of verse 13 and the exact opposite of verse 14. I don't think James is, is choosing these words haphazardly or without in, uh, uh, intent. Jesus was the, uh, was the embodiment of verse 13 as James says, who is wise and understanding among you? In the back of his mind, he's like, I know one. Who could stand up and come forward? Y'all put your hands down. I know one guy who could come up and say, yeah, I'm wise and understanding. By his good conduct, let him show works and meekness of wisdom. Who was the one who, who nobody could ever say anything other than that he did good works in the meekness and the humility of wisdom? James says, that's my brother. <laughs> that's Jesus. We see that. And in the exact opposite of if you want to talk about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, there wasn't a whiff of bitter jealousy in Jesus. There wasn't a hint of selfish ambition in Jesus. He didn't look out for himself, but for us. He didn't come to, to, to be served, but to serve. He came, uh, who no, knew no sin, to, to become sin, that in him we, we might become the righteousness of God. The whole story of Christianity and the good news of the gospel travels along this same path that sees Jesus as the truly wise one. Indeed, 1 Corinthians 8 actually says that he is the wisdom of God. That's who Jesus is, that he came uh, to, to save us from the danger that we see here. That those of us who have no choice to be anything other than earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, and to be uh, um, swayed by those forces, those influences, Jesus came as the wisdom of God, who threw off all selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, and literally laid his life down, so that if we repent and turn from our sins, we might have true life. The 
beauty of the gospel is seen along these same lines of, of wisdom and of deeds that show themselves in meekness and other-centeredness. All right, so if that has shown us how we see wisdom at all, that it, it has a look to it, it's known by our deeds, and we see how we might distinguish and, and, and know what earthly wisdom looks like, James now turns to show us the positive side of that and what heavenly wisdom looks like, how heavenly wisdom is detected, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So again, I want you to remember verse 13. The, the one with true wisdom will show it in good works with meekness. So true wisdom won't boast of itself, but will be evidenced by a deep humility. The reason that's true, we see right here in verse 17. The reason that's true is because it's wisdom from above. We can't boast of something that we didn't accomplish in the first place. Wisdom is, is from above. It supernaturally originates. It doesn't self-originate. So no, we can't boast in this wisdom because it's wisdom that was revealed to us, not that we figured out on our own. It was wisdom that was given to us, not anything that we came up with. It's decisions that we have because the Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us and illumines truth to us, not because we were so brilliant to figure any of it out. It is wisdom from above. That's exactly why it humbles us. So verse 17, how will we recognize this true divine wisdom. James gives us, gives us a list. He gives us eight things, and, and then, a, 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 as you see at the very end, a, a glorious result that springs from the seeds planted by true godly wisdom. I want to look at these eight things in, in four different groups, which, which I'll explain in just a minute. But we have four groups in this list that James gives to us. The first group is, is really, it's not a group at all, it's just the first word. It's pure. Grouping number one is that wisdom is pure. This is one word that sets as an umbrella above all of the rest. True wisdom is first pure. This word means to, to be set apart, to be reserved in relationships. You might even, uh, it would be translated as chastity, reserved for one. That's the word here that it is, it is pure, it is set apart, it is clean, it is unstained, it is undefiled. This wisdom is not tainted, not dominated or shot through by that which is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you want to know what true wisdom looks like. James says the first thing that's going to set as an umbrella above all of these other things that I'm about to say is that true, godly, biblical wisdom that we see in deeds and the acts of humility True wisdom is pure. And for us to have true, pure wisdom, it has to come from a true, pure source. Now again, that doesn't mean that the only thing we do is just all sit around and read our Bibles all the time and we don't have any other input or knowledge or wisdom that come from any other sources outside of the Bible. It does mean 
that that is our primary source for wisdom and all truth, and that we use that as a filter through which anything else that comes to us must sift through that filter. That's how we know whether the wisdom we are getting is pure or not, is that divine, inerrant, authoritative scripture is allowed to set as the, as the filter. And if, it, if, if this wisdom and understanding for, for whatever issue you're dealing with in whatever field and whatever, whatever aspect of your life, we, we take the Bible and we set it as a, a filter. And if it comes down through that, we know it's pure wisdom. Because the Bible affirms it, the Bible uh, supports it, the Bible teaches it. When we get into our own worldly understanding and, and uh, um, ways of, of, of viewing whatever topic it is, we can get in a dangerous spot if that doesn't accord with and line up with Scripture. And so first, it's pure. The Bible serves as a filter through which all else is pressed. So purity is the overarching characteristic of divine wisdom. Now he's going to give seven more things. But one thing that's going on in, in the original language that we don't really see here in our English translation of the text is that James actually groups these. He actually groups these next seven. After he says the word pure, he groups the next seven things. Garrett, you're going to love this. As an adept preacher, James does so with the absolutely awesome apparatus of alliteration. Amen? Amen. So the first group that he gives... Peace, uh, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. He starts all of those with the Greek letter epsilon or the, or the letter E. Then the next two in the group are, are governed by that magnifier, full of, full of mercy, full of good fruits. And then the final two, he alliterates once more, this time with the Greek letter alpha, the letter A, impartial and sincere. So, so as you're reading in the original uh, text, you would see that James is giving uh, these in, in kind of little packages as they were. So wisdom is first pure, but then there's another group that he wants to show to us, and it's, it's, it's peaceable, it's, it's gentle. Um, uh, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason. He groups those together, and then full of uh, wisdom and mercy, and then the final one, or I'm sorry, full of mercy and good fruits, and then the final grouping that he gives, impartial and sincere. So let's look at those groupings. So this is the, the kind of the second grouping here. The first is pure. The second, in verse 17, wisdom is peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. James groups these together, as I think you'll see, because there's a lot of overlap between these concepts. The word for peaceable means that the truly wise will cultivate, will foster an atmosphere that seeks harmony in relationships. True wisdom is peace-loving and not strife-stirring. How do I know that I'm interacting with this person in my life or in this relationship in my life? Well, is, is it strife-stirring or is it per pursuing harmony and, and a peace? Is it peace-loving? The word gentle that he uses, has the idea of being considerate of others. Actually, if you read from the, the New International Version, that's actually how they translate it. It's the word considerate instead of gentle. This word points to a willingness to yield to others and an unwillingness to be kind of exacting and, uh, uh, yeah, kind of exacting and, and final and inflexible in the way that you deal with others. This person has the ability to, to forbear with others and to extend courtesy to others. They have a gentleness and a concern for other people that they find themselves in relationship or conversation with. 
And then true wisdom is also open to reason. I'll just make a, a Bible study note here for you. This is one of the reasons that different English translations are so helpful in your own uh, study of God's Word. You don't, you don't need to know original languages or anything like that. But you can take various English translations that we have, and they will show you so much sometimes by comparing them. The value of different Bible translations isn't just, well, this is the one I like the best, and I'm just going to stick with that. Sometimes it's helpful for us to look. So consider this for, for, for an example of that, where the ESV that I'm reading from says that, that true wisdom is open to reason. The Christian Standard Bible says that true wisdom is compliant. The New American Standard says true wisdom is reasonable. The NIV says that true wisdom is submissive. The King James says that it's easy to be entreated. Those various translations give, give you a feel, don't they? I, mean, I don't know what's going on in the Greek and what's happening right there, but I can see that there's something happening here that these different translations show that, that, that the person who has true wisdom is, is in a sense, persuadable. They're persuadable, they're, they're, they're able to, to, they're open to reason, they're compliant, they're submissive, they're able to be entreated. They'll hear the truth, consider it, and then willingly obey it and comply with it. it makes me think of, of um, Paul in Athens in Acts 17, when he's uh, talking to the Athenians, and he's talking to them about the resurrection of all things. <laughs> Somebody died and then rose again. And that's possible for all of them. He was the first fruits of everything else. And the Athenians, you remember, some of them scoffed at him. like, Paul, you're out of your mind. But the text says in Acts 17, other people said what? We will hear you again concerning this. <laughs> and that's a good posture. We're all the time finding ourselves in conversations with people, gosh, this year of all years, where we have disagreement and the ability to say, huh, I'll hear you again concerning that. I, I'm open to reason. I'm willing to, to hear you out and to, to uh, be submissive to the truth, truth wherever I find it. So church, are, are you wise? Are you peaceable? Are you gentle? Are you open to reason? True wisdom doesn't have to win every argument. True wisdom doesn't have to have the last word all the time. True wisdom understands that sometimes it's better to be kind than to be right. True wisdom isn't consumed with asserting its rightness all the time. Now you might say, yeah, 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 but, but we have to stand for the truth, right? We have to fight for what's true. We have to contend for the faith once we're all delivered for the saints. Certainly we do. And all I can say is I'm sorry, but James did not include combativeness in his list of what true wisdom looks like. So yeah, Jude, contend for the faith, faith once for all delivered to the saints. But don't be a jerk while you're doing it. It's the New Living Translation. <laughs> James says, it's not, I, that's not true. Uh, James, James says, we, we have to be peaceable, gentle, open to reason. May God give us wisdom for how to contend for the faith as peaceable and gentle and open to reason type people. Church, evaluate your interactions with others, especially those that you disagree with. How do those conversations go? What wells up within you? Especially those you disagree with. What are your online interactions like? Do you see a hyperlink for more comments 
under a thread, and you're like, oh, I'm clicking on that. Let's see what this fight is, and I'm jumping in. Don't be a troll. <laughs> you, you, don't have to, you don't have to win every, you don't have to be combative. You, true wisdom doesn't do that. It's peaceable. It's gentle. Open to reason. I'd encourage you to practice this week listening to others, asking questions, seeking to understand their perspective. Be clear on what you think truth is, yet prioritize relationship, what it looks like to be gentle and peaceable and open to reason. And then the third grouping that James gives here, so you have pure, then you have that group all with the letter E in the Greek, and then the third grouping here is wisdom is full of mercy and full of good fruits. It includes kindness and concern to those in need. Wisdom overflows with and drips with compassion and love. You see it and immediately recognize that it blossoms into the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians 5. True wisdom promotes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In fact, that would be a great application this week if you want to go deeper into this in your community group or just in your own time in the Word. Take Galatians 5 and James 3 and line them up. It's interesting there. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, but you know what James does just before the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? He gives the work of the flesh. This is how we see the work of the flesh. This is how we see the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. James is doing the same thing here, isn't he? James is saying this is how we see worldly, fleshly, demonic wisdom, and this is how we see true biblical spiritual wisdom. And one of the things he says is that it blossoms and blooms forth in all kinds of good fruits. The same thing Paul talks about in Galatians 5 will be seen in our lives, and that's how we can recognize true wisdom if those things are uh, blossoming forth in our lives through our actions and through our deeds. True wisdom is full of overflowing with the good fruits of faith, good fruits of the Spirit working in our lives. This is why James says in verse 18, our last verse, is why he says that, that, that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That word for harvest is the same Greek word for fruit. It's the exact same word. So James picks up on this image of wisdom being peaceable and wisdom being full of good fruit. And he says that when we're doing that, then an abundant harvest of righteousness springs forth. You want revival? People always pray for revival. I'm not sure there's a better biblical phrase than that, a harvest of righteousness springing forth. This is how it comes. Pursue wisdom from above. True wisdom plants seeds that blossom into and produce the fruit of righteousness. The fourth and final grouping Wisdom is impartial and sincere. Wisdom is impartial and sincere. This last grouping focuses in on, on really the stability of wisdom, the trustworthiness of wisdom. To be impartial means that you're, you're not given to a judgmentalism. It's, it's unwavering. In fact, there's a couple of Bible translations that, that render it that way, that, that wisdom is, is uh, unwavering. As we saw in chapter 2, partiality is a sin, and true wisdom won't show partiality. It won't waver based on external circumstances of who somebody is and what you can get out of the situation. 
True wisdom is impartial in that way. It's not wishy-washy. It doesn't flip-flop based on who it is that you're dealing with. It's one of the ways you recognize true wisdom is that it has a stability and a, a genuineness to it that doesn't toss back and forth. And similarly, it's sincere. The, the, the word sincere uh, here it means uh, literally without a mask. Uh, the Greek word is hypocritos. You might hear the word hypocrisy. To be a hypocrite is to wear a mask. Saying one thing, hiding behind a mask. And James says that's not true wisdom. True wisdom doesn't have a mask on. It removes a mask. Don't read anything into that. <laughs> that didn't hit me until I was about three sentences in. <laughs> Check your email. We've emailed you. True wisdom, James is saying, is trustworthy. It, it's transparent. It's stable. It's genuine. Church, true wisdom doesn't seek for or provide an echo chamber where we seek to hear what we want or we provide wisdom that others just seem to want. True wisdom, James is saying, is impartial. It does, it's more stable than that. It's not wavering. True wisdom is even impartial in our own hearts and our own minds, uh, vigilant against a confirmation bias where we interpret all information as confirming what we thought in the first place. That would be a partial understanding of our own wisdom. The wisdom of God is unwavering, impartial, sincere, not hiding. It tells us the truth that we need to hear, not the truth that we want to hear, and yet it does so from a place of love and compassion and mercy. Lord, help us strike this balance. Friends, this is what true godly wisdom looks like. As we near our conclusion, I want you to look just at the first few verses of verse 17 once again. James says, but the wisdom from above. And he goes on. But I just want you to note that our knowledge of the source of wisdom informs our search for wisdom. Our knowledge of the source of wisdom informs our search for wisdom. I say this because you may have noticed in the text that James doesn't give us anything on how to find wisdom. It's not the point of the text here. He doesn't tell you how to be wise. He doesn't tell you how to acquire wisdom. He doesn't tell you how to grow in wisdom in this text. He just tells you how to recognize it and how to distinguish the divine wisdom from the demonic wisdom. But this little phrase, but the wisdom from above, if we know it's wisdom from above, then our search has to be through the means of heavenly things, of divine activities, of God-centered meditations. That's how we arrive at it. And so if you walk away from this text and you're saying, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I, I see how to distinguish between true and tainted wisdom. I, I, I understand that, but how do I get more of the true stuff? James says, look up. True wisdom is from above. You know, good preaching classes will tell you to, to stay away from, from what are called the more applications. right? Application from any text. What do you do? Oh, read your Bible more, pray more, fellowship more. But there's a lot of truth there. We do need to read the Bible more. We do need to pray more. 
We do need to fellowship with other wise believers more. And so as you step away from this text and you say, how do I get more of that wisdom from above? I see what it looks like. I want more of it. And James says, it comes from above. You need to look up. So friends, there will be no replacement for you saturating yourself and God's word and what he has said. What happens here on a Sunday morning is awesome. This ain't it. You have, remember, you have teams of people working around the clock to sow unspiritual wisdom and worldliness in you. We have to be people who are immersed and just constantly meditating on God's word, personally, in groups, discussions, Zoom chats, whatever it is. We have to take God's word and constantly sit under it and to submit to what it says. So yeah, read your Bible more. Pray more. What a great week for us to be calling the church to prayer and fasting. Would you pray this week that our church would be characterized and epitomized by a godly, divine wisdom, wisdom from above? That the good fruits and mercy and peaceableness and gentleness and humility all the things that we see here, that that would characterize us and not a selfish ambition, not a bitter jealousy, that we would keep our eyes on Christ and see good deeds of meekness and understand that we're wise because of that. This week, as you're spending time in prayer, pray for yourself that you would No true wisdom, wisdom that is from above, not from below. You might pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. We'll close with this. It's my prayer after reading James 3 this week. Search me, O God, and know my heart. I want to be wise. I can't tell if I am. You hopefully want to be wise. You can't tell if you are until it works itself out in your deeds. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father,